If you don't mind, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to consider together today as we continue on in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Ephesians, we're going to consider together a difficult passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, a passage about slaves or bondservants and masters. First thing I want to do is just read the passage, and then I want to lay some background to the passage so that we can understand it in its context, and then see what it means and then how it applies to us as a church family. So we're going to talk today about bond servants and masters, a test of gospel hope. This is God's Word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. May God bless to us the reading of his word. I'm going to read for you a stanza from a Christmas song. Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. This was written a long time ago. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as far as the curse is found. Now, if you're a thinking person, and I've already told you that you are today, you may wonder why I would read a Christmas hymn whenever we're talking about slaves and masters. Well, let me lay a little bit of background, then we'll come back to that little conundrum. This passage doesn't say everything that we wish it might say. In other words, there's a lot of caveats and addendums, perhaps, that we wish Paul would have added, such as, Paul, what is your perspective on slavery? Understanding that humans are made in the image of their Creator, what do you really think about people being owned by another and mistreated by another? And knowing full well that Jesus' kingdom is breaking in and will come to full consummation, What is your advice on how we should go forward in abolishing it? Well, no one had time to ask Paul as he wrote these things down to add some footnotes. He didn't do it. This passage doesn't say everything we might wish it to say. Furthermore, uncomfortably so, this passage says some things that make us a little queasy. Particularly from a 21st century perspective, we look back on this ancient text, knowing how slavery affected not only Paul's day and age, but our own, how it has affected our own country in particular, perhaps as much or more than any land in the history of humanity. And even though slavery officially has been abolished for 150 years or so, The ripple effects of the evil of the slave trade and slavery 
here in our country continues to this day. We have never gotten over it, and I am not sure we fully will for a long, long time to come. God has blessed us with people in our church who are of different ethnic backgrounds. We have African Americans in our church who feel this text differently than those of us from a white ethnicity. Texts like this affect me more now as a father because I have two black sons who I have to raise in a predominantly white world, and how will I do that? How will I teach them to consider the past of this country and how we move forward? Paul didn't have all these things in mind. Paul wasn't omniscient. Paul couldn't see 2,000 years into the future. Paul wrote, as a man of his age, under inspiration by the Spirit, however... And so we live with some tension as we approach this text. Though it doesn't say everything we wish it would say, and though it says some things we wish it didn't say, at least to the extent that Paul says them, we still have to approach it as a text given to us by God for our good. But we cannot approach this text blithely. We can't just approach it as though this was something in the ancient past, 2,000 years ago in Paul's case, or 150 years or so ago in our case, and act like this text is read in a vacuum. It it is not the case. Racism is universal and not confined to our nation for sure. I've traveled to five of the seven continents, and I've seen racism everywhere. I saw it the other day in my neighborhood. Two little African-American boys were riding around on their bikes in our neighborhood, and they made fun of my two black sons for being darker than they were. Racism is not just a white and black thing, it's across all ethnic identities. It's alive and well in our world today, and it seems like it is passed down from parents to their children, and seemingly perhaps it's endemic in our sinful nature. We do have to admit, though, that Paul wrote from a bit of a different context, and, and here's what I mean. If you were a slave in Alabama in 1840, you would have read this text differently, probably, than a slave would have received this from Paul's pen 2,000 years ago. Ancient slavery was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. But it typically wasn't race-based, particularly in the Roman world where it was more like indentured servitude. A person committed themselves to an owner, sometimes because they had gone bankrupt and couldn't pay their debts, Sometimes they had been purchased, but, but sometimes slaves would be the equivalent of like PhDs. They were brought into a family to tutor the children of wealthy families. This is not to make light of slavery in the ancient world. I think I should say as a blanket statement that slavery in and of itself is a result of the fall. I have no hesitation in saying that. Had there been no fall, there would be no slavery. There would be no racism. There would be no prejudicial bias. There would be no injury to another over whom you have power. That would not exist if it were not for sin. So, so Paul writes into a context where sin permeated the culture and its practices. And yet, I'm saying to you that perhaps the reason Paul doesn't add some addendums to this, footnotes, why he doesn't give his opinion as to why slavery is so evil is that it wasn't his purpose, first of all, 
in Ephesians chapter 6 to, to upend or to undo cultural norms. So contextually, that's not what Paul's aiming at. Instead, Paul is seeking to, to transform how people lived within those norms. But also, Paul wrote to a culture that approached slavery a bit differently. In the Roman culture, it was not uncommon for a slave to be freed. And when he was freed, he would take the name of his master and he would become a citizen with full rights. This was true of God's people as well. As you look back to slavery in ancient Israel, every seven years, if you had become an indentured servant to another, you were released. It's called the year of Jubilee. And and sometimes with that, you would receive blessings like money and land that would come along with it so that you could set up life again. But the truth of the matter is, we read this passage as Americans, Americans who, who look back on our own tragic history of the slave trade through the Atlantic, where millions upon millions of helpless people were brought over in horrible, treacherous conditions and slave ships lying sometimes two and three deep, making the great passage across the waters and then sold at market, not speaking the English language, separated from families, beaten, sometimes killed, and treated worse than cattle. We read in that context. And as I have said to you today, the ripple effects of such treatment did not go away with Emancipation Proclamation. It didn't go away with the Civil Rights Act. It continues to this day. And so, we can't remove ourselves perfectly and just read this text in a vacuum. So I will say this to you so that we can approach the text and see what it means for us and how we should apply it. Jesus will make all things new. Paul hints at that here. Paul hints at this text that, that social norms, things that were culturally acceptable would come apart. Our nation, I would say, probably is better than it was in the 1860s, but we have so far to go. But, but laws, community organizers, civil rights activists and organizations, presidents, legislative bodies, they, they can't fix this. Only Jesus can fix this. And and so before I go on, I want to say to you that there will come a time when, when there will be no more sin and sorrow, where there will be no more thorns that infest the ground. There will come a day when all we know is the flowing of the blessings of Jesus, the King of the universe, and He will remove the curse as far as it is found. He promises that. He will come and He will wipe away every tear from every eye. And the nations will worship together in perfect harmony. And no one will own anybody. And no one will mistreat anybody. And no one will deal with the ripple effects and ramifications of awful sin. That's coming, my friends. White and black alike. But Paul hints at that here. And so I want us to approach the text with that in mind. First of all today, the gospel enables those under authority to serve with diligence and faithfulness. 
because slavery is outlawed in our country, we can't purely approach this text in an antiquated manner and, and see it for ourselves because, because we don't live as slaves. None of us ever have. Often this text, and its twin text in Colossians chapters 3 and 4, is approached purely from an economic point of view. That is to say, if, if you're an employee, you should work hard, even if you have a bad boss. If you're an employer, you should treat your employees well and not be a bad boss. That's not a terrible application of this text, but it doesn't do it full justice. Because if I'm an employee at Huntington or Chase or Cardinal or some other corporation here in town, and my boss sends me a nasty email about a deadline I missed or some miscommunication if my co-worker threw me under the bus and I'm suffering for what they failed to do, I get to go home. That nasty boss who sent the nasty email, I don't live under his roof. He's not going to hurt me. And frankly, if he bothers me enough, I can just say sayonara. I'm out of here. If you were a slave in the first century or in 1860 America, you didn't do that. You didn't get to say adios to your master. You were property. So while we can look at a text like this as an opportunity to consider the employer-employee relationship, it's, it's not really apples to apples. So what we have to do is try to, to get to the principle of this text. And the principle is that if you are under authority in any context, if you are a wife submitting to a husband, if you are children obeying your parents, if you are an employee mistreated by an employer, if you are struggling in a country like ours which has imperfect governance, if because of your background or your ethnicity it's harder for you than another, this text is for you today. The gospel enables those under authority to serve with diligence and faithfulness. Now, the truth of the matter is, in one way or another, all of us are under authority from one person or another. You are not an emperor or an empress unto yourself. You live under the authority of another. And so this text should speak to all of us. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Paul opens up. Here's the context in which Paul wrote. Paul wrote into a context in which probably a third of the city of Ephesus were slaves. So think about that. Just divide our congregation in thirds today, and a third of them would have been slaves. The wonder of the gospel, however, is that some of the slaves in Ephesus believed, and some of their masters believed too. So think about this. You go home, and if you're a slave owner, you probably had some wealth. You go home to your little estate, whatever size, and, and you're in charge there. You, you don't ask your slave, hey, I would really like it if you would have dinner ready at 6 p.m. That's not how you talk to your slave. You just told them what to do. And if they didn't do it, you threatened them. 
And even back in that age, not just in our understanding of slavery in America, you could be beaten or even killed. And if you were a slave, you didn't get to argue back. And if you did, you felt the punishment for having done so. But then let's say you heard the gospel, that Jesus Christ was the second person of the Godhead, and He came down and lived a perfect life, and He died in Jerusalem, and He rose from the grave and had gone back to heaven, and one day He would return, and He was ushering in a new kingdom, and you could be transformed and and brought into His kingdom. You believed that. You didn't have any rights. You didn't have any freedom, and the gospel would have seemed like really good news to you as a slave. Let's say that your master heard the gospel too. They were tired of living in the idolatry that Ephesus had to offer. They had wealth. I mean, after all, they're slave owners, but but that didn't make them happy. They wanted something more. There was an ache within them for something more, and the gospel held that out to them. And they believed too. And then you come together, and you go to your brother's house. Maybe a bigger house where a lot of people can gather together. And and then the people get together and they're called the church. And when you're under that roof for that period of time, you break bread together as equals. You partake of communion together as equal participants in the covenant. The Word of God is preached to you equally. You embrace one another and give each other holy kisses equally. How can that not affect what happens when you go back home? And that's what Paul's saying. These slaves and masters live together like families. Often, especially if you were wealthy, you entrusted your children to these slaves. They raised them for you. You had to trust them implicitly. Now, again, I'm not trying to to whitewash pun intended to some degree. I'm not trying to whitewash this as though it was a perfect thing. It wasn't. As I've already said, it was the result of sin. Sometimes there were functional slave-master relationships, and often there were dysfunctional ones. But what Paul is saying to these people, slaves and masters alike, is that you must live in harmony with one another. What does the gospel have to do with this section? Because you don't see the word gospel in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. We've already talked about this to great extent as we've gone through the book of Ephesians. The first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, is all about the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ to renew us to Himself through His Son. We were formerly children of wrath, and now we're children of God. Chosen before the foundation of the world that we would be His own. We are trophies of grace, and there is nothing that we lack. And then in chapters 4-6, through Paul teases out the implications of that. It is as though in chapters 4-6, through Paul is saying, so what? If Ephesians chapters 1-3 through are true, so what? So what? Don't be immoral. Live in harmony. Work hard. Don't slander. Be wise. Sing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, bring your children up with tender mercy. What else? 
even in the most difficult of relationships. And in that current day, slaves and masters, the most difficult of relationships, even that relationship had to be affected by the gospel. So what Paul is doing is he's still answering the question, so what? Well, for slaves and masters, so what for them? Slaves were to obey and serve with diligence and faithfulness, knowing full well that at the end of the day they were really serving Jesus. As you see in verse 5, they were to do it in fear and trembling. I don't think that Paul means here they were to tremble before their earthly masters, but fear and trembling before their heavenly master. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. These two words, eye service and people pleasers, are compound words originally in the original language, and they're very well translated into English for us. Paul is saying, don't just do something to get by. And don't do it just to please the person next to you. Instead, do the best you can. And again, just like he says in verse 5, you're a servant of Christ. And you're to serve God from the heart. He goes on in verse 7 to say that you're to do this with goodwill. Again, as to the Lord, third time he said that, not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So three times he tells these slaves to serve their earthly masters as though they're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if they don't serve a kind master, because not all of the masters of these believing slaves would have been converted for sure. even if they were not treated kindly, even if they weren't rewarded for their full-hearted diligence and faithfulness, they could trust Jesus that one day He would come and make all things new and would reward them for having served diligently and faithfully. Now for us, because none of us are slaves, even if you talk about your boss that way, even if you talk about your spouse that way, you're not. There is a principle here for you, and the principle is you don't just do enough to get by. You don't just do enough to get the one who has authority over you off your back. In fact, because a lot of the believing slaves would have had persisting unbelieving masters, in other words, the masters would not have believed, many of them would have had to suffer under unfair circumstances. In other words, just because they became Christians didn't mean that their home situation got immediately better. Perhaps for some of them it never did. And yet still, they were to trust God and do their best and not just get their masters off their back. So what does that look like in our context? Well, let's talk about wives and husbands for a second. We went through this in some detail and Chapter 5, wives are to submit to their husbands. They are to follow the leadership of their husbands. What if, ladies, you have a husband who is not a good leader, who is unkind, who can be brash, who can have unrealistic expectations for you? What do you do in that situation? 
Well, if you apply the principle of verses 5 through 8 here in Ephesians 6, you can still submit to Him diligently and faithfully, knowing that really you're not submitting to Him. Ultimately, you're submitting to Jesus, and He will reward that. Now, as I said to you as we went through verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians chapter 5, this does not mean that you have to endure abuse. We talked about that in some detail there. Absolutely not. If you can't find protection for yourself, come to your brothers here in this church and we will make sure that you are protected. But, but assuming that it's not abuse, but he's just a difficult guy, you can submit to him diligently and faithfully. And as Peter suggests in his first epistle, such living with him may actually lead him to repentance as he sees your calm and persistent faith. Children, is it possible to have a father or mother who is unreasonable? Well, if your parents have a moment of lucidity or honesty, we would say that we're often unreasonable, right? Can you submit to your imperfect, sometimes unreasonable parents diligently and faithfully knowing that you're really serving Jesus? What if, and this is where the application does make sense, what if you do have a work situation where you have an unreasonable boss? I will not take a poll, especially with all of you introverts, but, but I would suspect that a number of you would raise your introverted hand way up in the air, maybe even both of them, and say, I have an unreasonable boss. I can't stand him or her. He or she has unrealistic expectations. I have to stay too late for far too little money. You don't recognize the good things that I do. In fact, I could do a better job than them. They are inept. They are incompetent. They are dishonest. They don't care about me. Did any of that resonate with any of you as you think about your bosses? It could be the will of God that you move on. It's possible and allowable. But for some of you, it may be the will of God that you stay. It may be the will of God that you stay for the sake of that boss. God may use you to bring clarity to the eyes and the mind of such a boss to consider his or her own ways, perhaps even considering the truths of the gospel. It may not be for that boss. Your staying may be for you. For you will learn to be patient. You will learn who you are actually serving. You will learn to wait on Jesus to reward you. I've seen my wife go through this. For 10 years after we moved here, she did accounting bookkeeping for a small private company here in Columbus. And she worked for really bad people, really mean people. And as many times as we talked about her quitting, she just wouldn't do it. And finally, one day, after it finally got too bad, she just quit. It was it. She'd had enough. But important lessons were learned through that, both for her horrible bosses who saw her kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and willingness to endure workplace abuse through the years, but also for her, learning to trust Jesus and seek His face, learning to, to undergo wrongdoing and not react every time. 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that He is making all things new and one day will fully all make, things, make all things new, this truth, this good news enables those under authority, and again, that catches all of us, to serve with diligence and faithfulness. Did not the Lord Jesus live this way? Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man, which is a title both of humility and glory, if you understand its biblical theology context, the Son of Man, who would receive the deed of the earth and and rule over all things one day, the Son of Man, second person of the Trinity, Son of God, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many which explains why on the eve of his arrest he could strip down to his garments of servitude and wash the feet of his sinful disciples, including the one that would betray him and have him arrested. It is why he could hang on the cross suspended between heaven and earth and cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the cross, we see the greatest treachery ever committed and the greatest act of grace ever provided. For Jesus served the helpless. Jesus served His enemies. Jesus served His murderers. And so because of who Jesus is and what He did, and because of what He's accomplishing and one day will fully bring to pass, Those of us who live under authority must serve with diligence and faithfulness, whether or not those who have authority over us are kind and merciful. But Paul goes on in verse 9, and he teaches us that the gospel compels those with power to use it with mercy and restraint. The gospel compels those with power to use it with mercy and restraint. Masters, Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. What is the same that they are to do to them? They're to do good, as Paul says in verse 8. Masters are to do good to their servants. That would have sounded pretty radical in 1860s America and in first century Rome or First century Ephesus. What do you mean masters are to do good to their servants? You're my property. Paul's saying something radical to the servants in verses 5 through 8. And that is because of the transforming power of the gospel, they can serve with diligence and faithfulness. But perhaps what he says to the masters is even more radical. You are to do the same to them. Not to view them as property, but to do good to them. And if they did serve under the the same roof and worship under the same roof, in other words, if they were slaves and masters in the same household, but then worshiped together in the same church, this would have been really radical and, and transformational. So let's say you're a slave owner in first century Ephesus and your neighbor starts believing in this person named Jesus Christ who is the king of the universe. Formerly, this man, let's call him Rufus because that sounds like an Ephesian name, um, 
Rufus formerly was unkind to his servants. He made them fetch water from, from far away. And whenever they were late or sloshed too much water on the cobblestone streets of Ephesus, they would beat them for it. They got up before the master. They went to bed after the master. They did all the dirty work. They never got a thank you. In fact, they got a beating just to remind them who was in charge. But Rufus has a new confession. He's worshiping a new deity. And everything about him changes. Rather than threatening his servants, he encourages them. And one day you're on the street and you see Rufus and the servant brings a bucket of water back to the house and he sloshes half of it on the cobblestones. And instead of threatening and being mad, which Rufus would have done formerly, without restraint, he goes over and helps his servant and says, it's okay, it's no big deal. If you as a neighbor saw such a thing, you would have thought to yourself, what is going on? But such masters who have been transformed by the power of the gospel should have been changed in every way, in every fashion. It should have touched every part of their lives. What if you were a master who believed and your slaves didn't? That would have been interesting, right? What if you were a master who placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Paul wrote this letter to your church and you heard that you were to do good to your servants and stop threatening them and that you served the same master and you went home and started treating them differently. Might that not have an incredible transformative impact on such a person who felt like they were nothing and, and by the way that you used to treat them, they were nothing? You see, my friends, the gospel transforms the effects of the curse far as it is found, even in the most difficult of relationships, back in Paul's day and in our day as well. If you are a person who has power over another, and many of you here do, and probably in some way we all do, if you're a parent, you have some power over another. Some of you are bosses at work. Some of you have quite a bit of power in your place of work or influence. You are compelled to use that power with mercy and restraint. You see, that's meekness. Power without restraint. That kind of person, they're just a bully. But power used with measured restraint and mercy, that, that person is a blessing. And so, there and again, though it's not a perfect parallel, it does apply to the workplace. If you are a person who has people under your authority, use the authority that you've been given redemptively. Be kind. Be patient. Get to know those under your care. Understand that perhaps their current poor work performance is a reflection of something really horrible going on in their family or their marriage. Taking time to, to try to help bring them along redemptively that, that they might become great employees. Parents, do this with your children. Just like you, but of course to a greater degree, your immature children are unfinished works. It's possible for us to exercise 
our authority and to use our power to bring them into conformity. But typically, we will just raise little quiet rebels, children who know what it looks like to do eye service, people please, to get mom and dad off their back. Instead, by God's grace, we must bring the hope of the gospel into the home, not bullying our kids. And you might cringe when I say that, but if we're being honest, most of us do it at one time or another. We bully our kids, maybe never physically, but verbally, emotionally. We manipulate them. Just as masters were to stop their threatening, which was common to them, they were allowed to do it. Parents, we must do that with our children. And rather than using force of will and power and strength and size, we are to approach them with mercy and restraint. Why is all of this true? Because the children that we have in our homes have one master, and it's the same as us. We are not their master. And He is in heaven. And as Paul ends this verse, verse 9, he says, there is no partiality with Him. He's watching. Now, because of the hope of the gospel, we don't have to freak out about that, right? Like, He's not up in heaven just waiting to zap us. Like, that's not what He's doing. That's not what Paul is suggesting here. But He is keeping accounts. Which means that if if we use our authority, the power that's been invested in us as bullies, we will give account for that. There's no partiality with Him. Likewise, even if we imperfectly, because we will be bullies sometimes, we will be unkind in our words and our actions, but, but though imperfectly, if we, by and large, over time, if our trajectory is toward merciful restraint and the exercise of our power, He sees that too. And He will reward that. So, though this is a difficult text to read as 21st century Americans, I hope that we can see some principles in it for us. The gospel enables those under authority to serve with diligence and faithfulness, even whenever conditions are not optimal and even unfair, unjust. And likewise, verse 9, the gospel compels those with power to use it with mercy and restraint, knowing that we have a master who is watching. How do we apply this to ourselves today as a church family? Well, first, I just suggest that we must devote ourselves to rehearsing the gospel's message and thoughtfully considering how it connects to all of life. Here's what I mean. If you just read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, through your cultural vacuum, you won't know what to do with it. You, you might even, frankly, detest it. But if you can see it in its context, not just in its near context, but in its broader context of the way Paul wrote Ephesians, the chapters 4 through 6 are the so what as a response to all that God has done for us in Christ. And in its biggest context, the Bible itself, that God made the world for His glory where people would live in harmony with Him. Yet because of the fall, we fell from grace. But He promised redemption and enacted it and ratified it through His Son, Jesus. And one day, Jesus will come and consummate His renewal that as far as the curse is found, where all the thorns are and all the sin and all the brokenness and all the mistreatment, that He'll undo all of that 
and bring harmony, not just horizontally between people and ethnicities, but between God and man. If we, if we know that's the big story, then we can read a text like this and we can draw truths from it. We can apply it to our particular condition. So I say to you that you must develop gospel fluency. A book has been written about this recently. So then in all of life, whether it's your marriage or your child rearing or your jobs or the dispensing of your money or the way that you treat your body or what you eat or whatever you do, you see it in the context of an opportunity to glorify God because you've been renewed by the hope of the gospel. So, so as Luther once said, we must beat the gospel into our heads continually because we're stubborn and we are prone to forget that after we know its message, we have to think carefully and thoughtfully, creatively, about how its message applies to all of life. And secondly and lastly, I suggest to you that we have significant opportunities to draw attention to Jesus and the hope of curse reversal, joy to the world, both by the manner that we live under authority and the manner by which we exercise it. To make this more simple. The way that you live under authority and the way that you exercise authority draws attention to Jesus. People are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. When it really comes down to it, if we're being honest, when we're 30, 40, and 50, the workplace is often not that much different than our high school setting. It's full of gossip, full of backbiting, full of people acting like children. What happens whenever you don't do that? What happens whenever your coworker knows that you have been mistreated? I mean, there, there's no question about it. And yet you take it. And you serve faithfully anyway. And you, and you don't gossip about your boss. That you don't join in when they gossip about their boss. But instead you serve faithfully. What does it say, wife, whenever you faithfully serve your husband and submit to him, even whenever he's a difficult guy? Your sisters see that. The world sees that. As you live under the authority of another, particularly whenever the authority that is exercised over you is difficult and unfair, you draw attention to the hope that you have in Jesus. And then people will ask you, why does this hope in you? You have opportunity to speak of it. Likewise, if you are one who has the opportunity and privilege of exercising authority, the way that you do so draws attention to Jesus. Jesus who is meek, Jesus who is kind, Jesus who came not to be served but to serve, Jesus who embodied what it looked like to give his life for another. When, when you live that way with mercy and restraint, it looks different and it draws attention to Jesus. So what I'm saying to you is that you have evangelistic opportunities given to you by the way that you both live under authority and by the way you exercise authority. So I say to you, this is no small deal. And reading this text in the context of its broader context, that Jesus is making all things new, transforming the way that we live under authority, transforming the way that we exercise authority, there's evangelistic opportunities for we are hoping in the gospel, and the hope is that we will draw other people to hope in it as well. So may the Lord Jesus help us to embrace this text and understand how it applies to our situation today. And may He draw attention to Himself and give us joy as we do so. Let's pray together.